today we're going to talk about what is groaning in the spirit. That phrase, groaning in the spirit. What, what does that mean? What is the Bible talking about when it talks about that? Um, and is Romans 8 talking about tongues? That, that's, to me, an important question I want to know. Is, is this passage about tongues when it talks about this? And we're finally going to get to Romans 8.28, one of the most loved and underrated verses in the entire Bible. I think as loved as it is, it, it deserves more love. <laughs> Actually, just like me. Um, just kidding. Uh, but I, I want to say, just, just get it out of the way, for those who will be watching on video, this, this scene behind me is we're set up for our VBS this year, and uh, that's what's going on behind me there. Um, this will not be the normal background for our, I know we need to improve our background we're working on it but this is not the improvement that we've been working on so um so let's continue Romans 8 verse 26 this is I really think Romans 8 is like the gift that keeps on giving this is such an incredible passage so beautiful so wonderful I am taking my time going through it but it, not so we can bluster but rather so we can actually stop and really appreciate these valuable truths so Romans 8 verse 26 it says likewise the spirit also helps in our weaknesses for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now there's a lot in these two verses, I mean, regarding prayer and regarding the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Um, so let's unpack these ideas and let's really think about this. Let's take a moment to think it through. Um, what weaknesses is this talking about? Well, the weaknesses is the groaning that we've been going through in Romans 8. We've talked about the how creation groans, how we groan, and now we're here where the Spirit also groans. So the weaknesses this is talking about is the sufferings of life, which is very generic and it's very generic on perfect, on perfect, on purpose. And that this is, this is deliberate. When God gives us these really generic senses of tribulations, and you're like, what tribulations? The, the reason why that's so generic in the passage is so you can apply it into your life, into whatever thing it happens to be that you're facing at the time. That's on purpose, I believe. Um, and groaning is such a perfect picture of generic suffering, isn't it? Just, oh, just, just groaning. I mean, whatever makes you groan can fit the bill. So the sufferings of life, do the sufferings of life get to you? This is my question. Do they get to you? Yes, they get to you. They get to you very deeply, very badly. Last week we talked about this, how Paul, he wrote that he would have had sorrow upon sorrow if this friend of his had died who he was praying for for healing. But he recovered, he got better, and so he was like, oh, thank you, Lord. So th there's situations where strong believers who love the Lord might have sorrow upon sorrow and great grief in their life. And that is one of the things that this passage is for, Romans 8, 26 and 27, this, this groaning of the Holy Spirit. So weakness is generic on purpose. Um, it says we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. Did you, did you catch that verse 26? For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. There, are, there is a picture in our minds sometimes of these super spiritual people. And if I could take them and put them into my situation, they would be able to handle it so much better, right? Because they're super spiritual. And so they would come in. And I mean, there are some people maybe who are genuinely really spiritual. But this doesn't mean you could just plug them in to whatever you're going through and they would have the perfect solution. There's times where we don't know what to pray for. Paul includes himself in this, right? We do not know what we should pray for. 
Do you always know what to pray for? No. You don't. You don't. In fact, this is, I think, normal in hard times. In hard times, it's normal to say, Lord, I want to pray about this issue, but I literally don't even know what to pray right now. I'm not sure how to handle what's going on. Well, there you go. That's what the scripture is talking about. In fact, it might just be normal on, on the wrong side of heaven over here <laughs> where we don't really know what's going on exactly in life and we're just guessing at things. And I can be almost a little bit offended, to be honest, when I see some people come into a situation they know very, very little about and they suddenly make spiritual proclamations that, as, if, as if they have this great insight and wisdom and then they usually evacuate as quickly as possible so they can't find out they're wrong. And I'm not really... I don't really like that very much. Uh, personally, I, I think it's okay to just, even as a pastor, to walk into a situation and say, look, I don't know what to pray for as we ought here. But I know we should pray. I know we should seek the Lord. I know we should point our hearts towards God in times of prayer. You're weak, so you pray. Even when you don't know what to pray, you can still pray. Your, your prayers themselves might feel weak. Um, and I think that that should not make you feel like there's something wrong with you as a Christian. You're just experiencing what is what we like to call trusting in the Lord with all your heart. And leaning not to your own understanding. You know, just acknowledging him in all your ways and, and letting him take care of the details of that. Um, so you don't know how to pray in order to pray for God's will in your life. So what happens? The Holy Spirit intercedes. The Holy Spirit intercedes. Now in the context of Romans 8, we've been talking about the blessings of this new relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. Right? We're, 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 we're walking in the Spirit, not in the flesh. We walk in the Spirit, not according to the law. We walk in this newness of life, and we're adopted. It said earlier, we're, we have the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And so this is connected, it's all connected to these ideas of this new Christian life that you have once you come to Christ. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, intercedes according to God's will. This does not happen for the unsaved. That's what that means. This Holy Spirit intercession is not going to happen for someone who doesn't know the Lord. It's only going to happen for the born-again believer who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This has to be the case. This is something deep and spiritual in your prayer life that happens because you are a vessel of the Holy Spirit. I don't know that I can tonight give you all the little nitty-gritty details. I mean, in fact, I should say I know I can't. But what we can do is we can start drawing some outlines about what this sort of thing is so that we can sort of move towards it in our own prayer life more. That's the idea. I don't think this is exactly a prayer for healing. Um, I should say that. In fact, if, if we were talking about like God heals every time, all the time, and I know even godly people who think God's all, his will is always to heal. I just don't know. I don't understand that. I think God's will is to heal a lot of the time, but, but I, I can't just say he always, always wants to heal. Like, I don't know how to say that personally, biblically even. Um, but I really think that if, if it was just a, prayer for healing, then that's, that's all we, we wouldn't need a lot of Romans eight. If it was all just a matter of, oh man, if you just posture your heart correctly, then you're going to get healing. Then it would just be all about posturing your heart correctly. But instead it's like, nope. And when you don't have all that, like you have, you still have the Holy Spirit coming alongside and interceding for you. So the, the rest of the chapter is going to reinforce this, that it's not about this sort of prosperity life, this, this perfect life. Most of Romans eight is unnecessary if the prosperity gospel is true. Um, but it's not. So this is, um, this is intercession from the Holy Spirit. This, I want to make a, a theological differentiation here. This is important. This is different than when Jesus intercedes for us. Jesus' intercession is different than the intercession of the Holy Spirit. So let me explain. Jesus intercedes for us for salvation. 
There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He comes between the Father and us, and he brings us together. The, the atonement of Christ brings us and makes us one. He heals our relationship, forgives us of our sin, and unites us to God. The Holy Spirit, this has already happened. The Holy Spirit now is interceding in a prayer format. Specific prayers are going up through the work of the Spirit. So we can read um, to talk about Jesus' intercession. That's in Hebrews. So turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 7. And I, I would love to teach uh, Hebrews sometime on the Sunday night service. I really love the book of Hebrews. And I think that if you, either the book of Galatians or the book of Hebrews, if you do a patient, careful, verse-by-verse study of either of those books, it will totally transform the way you view the Old Testament. You, you, will, you will have a greater light in your understanding of the Old Testament from these texts. So Hebrews 7, verses 25 through 28, it says, Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. This him is Jesus, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the intercession of Jesus. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. The idea is that the priestly intercession was to deal with man's sin. It wasn't to come and get prayers. It was to deal with sin. That was the, that's the priestly intercession. Jesus, he made one sacrifice and his constant life is perfect intercession for us to be able to be united to God in relationship with him. Um, So Jesus saves. If I could summarize it in two words, (laughs) Jesus saves. But the intercession of the Holy Spirit is different. It's not about bringing us from no relationship with God to a close and real and right relationship with God. This is about praying in times of weakness when you don't know what to pray for. So here's my question, and this is, this is what I was struggling with and wrestling with as I'm studying this passage, even really focusing on the topic of this question right here. Is this tongues? Is Romans 8 talking about speaking in tongues? Because it is one of the passages that will come up in a conversation between those who believe in the gifts of tongues and those who don't. Now, I, I should say, disclaimer, you guys probably all know this about me. I believe in the gift of tongues. I believe in tongues as being a legitimate thing that... That now, there's another group they call the cessationists who believe that the, generally speaking, there's different groups within the cessationists, but they think that the use of the gifts of the Spirit has ceased. Hence the phrase cessationist. They, they think it's ceased. It's not happening anymore. So we all would agree, hopefully most of us would agree, that tongues really did happen in the Bible, that there really was the Holy Spirit working and people speaking in tongues. They just think that it stopped for whatever reason. I don't think there's a good case for cessationists Anywhere in the scriptures, um, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think you can ground this in clear teachings of the Bible. I think you have to try to like find hints and and take some stuff out of context in order to try to make a case for it. Um, so tongues was used in different ways. Let me just give you a quick overview. One day we'll do maybe a whole teaching on tongues. I'll do it in tongues, actually. So then, if anyone says I was wrong, I'd be like, you just misunderstood. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, So tongues was used in three different major ways, three different major uses of tongues in the scriptures. One is Acts chapter 2. The first time tongues really shows up, it's used like this. The disciples are gathered together at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falls upon them, and they start speaking in tongues. Tongues just means languages. 
They start speaking in foreign languages. So they might have been Hebrew speakers or Greek speakers, but now they're speaking in Scythian languages or some other language, various different languages. And the people who are not saved are hearing their own language. So there's no gift of interpretation here. They're just hearing their own language. And they're hearing the wonderful works of God being proclaimed from people who do not know their languages naturally. So this is a really miraculous ministry to non-believers. It'd be like if I suddenly started speaking perfect French and someone here speaks French and then I'm declaring the praises of God and the truth of Christ and the gospel of Jesus. And they're like, well, that guy, okay, wow, God's really working here. That would be the the thing that was happening then. Um, This doesn't seem to me that it's the standard, typical use of tongues every other time in the scripture. This seems like it was more, wow, look, here's a special moment, you know, at Pentecost. Um, Now, tongues is also used in a different sense, and this is as a private prayer life thing. A private, just you and God, prayer situation. And this is in 1 Corinthians 14, where we get a detailed teaching on the use of tongues in the church. Let me read to you a couple verses. 1 Corinthians 14, 2, it says, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. This is different, right? It's not like there's someone standing there who understands you. This is not a witnessing thing. This is no one understands you. You don't understand you. No one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. So this is spirit-led, and it is it is a tongue. It is some kind of other language that other people don't understand. Paul even talks in the passage about tongues of men and angels. So is it possible it's not even a, a, an earthly language? Uh, we don't know. Then he also says in 1 Corinthians 14, 14, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. It's his spirit that prays. He's not saying the Holy Spirit's praying. He says his spirit prays, but his understanding's unfruitful. He doesn't even know what he's saying. So this is a different kind of tongue. It's just meant to be between you and God. And, and his counsel in 1 Corinthians 14 is, if you're speaking in this kind of tongue, do it between you and the Lord. Don't freak out and don't be in the middle of 50 people and everyone speaking in tongues. This is completely in rebellion to 1 Corinthians 14. I don't know how churches that do this kid themselves on the clear teachings of the passages of scripture that give very specific rules. And don't be like, well, the Holy Spirit's not bound by the, the Holy Spirit inspired these rules. These are the Holy Spirit's rules. So you can't, there's no way around it. There's no way around it. And I, I once went to a church where they violated 1 Corinthians 14 like crazy. And uh, when I was a teenager and years later, I went to a church where it was actually my first time at, at a Calvary Chapel. And I went to a Calvary Chapel in Lake Ozark, Missouri, of all places. And the pastor there was teaching 1 Corinthians 14. He was doing it verse by verse. And I, being a good, being a good American Christian, had not read it. <laughs> had not read it yet. Such a lazy. My discipleship was very slow because of my own lack of following Jesus um, for many years. But, but he's teaching 1 Corinthians 14 and he goes through it. And he just, verse by verse, just explains it. And I remember it hitting me. I was shocked. I went, there's rules wait a minute, I got to go back to California. I got to go to that church and show them. I mean, I'm not kidding. This is honestly what I really believed. I just was being naive and I thought, I've got to show them. And then later that day, I was just thinking about this. I was, you know, kind of mulling it over my head and I went, wait, they've got pastors at that church. <laughs> they have to have read this passage. They're just ignoring it. Oh, no. And um, I haven't really gotten over that yet. <laughs> They're just ignoring it. They're just ignoring it. I, I, I just, I don't get it. 
I don't get it. And many people shy away from tongues because of the misuses that they see. Many people shy away from gifts because of misuses that they see. But I don't see a way biblically to pull yourself away from the gifts. I think cessationists are, um, the, the motive is not Bible teaching. The motive is something else. Maybe the motive is to, to, to keep weird charismatics from, from being right or something. I don't know what the motive is, but it's, it doesn't seem to be coming from a, just a clear teaching of Scripture. Um, so tongues is a private prayer life. That, so there's, that's two of them. Tongues as a witness to the world, as you speak languages, they actually understand. Tongues is private prayer life. And there's a third one where tongues is like the middleman of prophecy. And that's when someone speaks in tongues and then there is a gift of interpretation. There is an actual interpretation where the tongue is in, is in translated, brought into a language everyone can understand. And then it becomes basically prophecy because you're, you're proclaiming truths from God, just direct information from the Lord. So it's prophecy. It doesn't have to be telling the future here for it to be considered a gift of prophecy. Um, and that's also 1 Corinthians 14. So when interpreted, it's like prophecy. When it's not interpreted, keep it to yourself between the Lord. And it is not required that every Christian speak in tongues. And that's, that's a, a, a big um, unnecessary guilt trip that no one should have dumped on them. Um, and um, plenty of godly people who love Jesus and serve him their entire lives and never spoke in tongues and were not hindered in their spiritual walk because of it. And we shouldn't uh, put that on people. Um, so, okay, that, that's the idea of tongues. Now you see where I'm coming from. Now I'm going, but is Romans 8 talking about tongues? Is the Romans 8 talking? Is this that? Is Romans 8 talking about what 1 Corinthians 14 is talking about? Well, let's look at the text. It says what the Holy Spirit does. It says intercedes. And intercession here is in the form of prayer. The Holy Spirit intercedes. These are, you don't know what to pray for as you are. The Spirit intercedes with groanings that words cannot express. This is intercession in the form of prayer. This prayer seems like it requires information, not just emotion. Because it's going to be some sort of prayer according to God's will. So we're praying for God's will here. That's going to be some sort of informational prayer, not just an emotional prayer. Um, so there's some sort of information there. So then you might say, well, maybe it is tongues. But let's keep reading. It says that this intercession takes place... And it's given kind of a vague description. It says, with groanings, with groanings. So does that mean that if I'm doing what Romans 8 is talking about, that I'm going, and I'm groaning, and then the Holy Spirit is taking me, just emoting to the Lord, and, it's, and is praying. Is that going on? I don't think that you have to have that view, actually. Um, because in the same passage in Romans 8, it says creation groans. And creation isn't literally groaning. These groans are a symbolic of the the, the uh, of creation, you know, with the struggles or the difficulties, the sufferings that go on during creation. It says that we groan, and the Holy Spirit groans. And if the whole, the Spirit's groaning, does it mean that I'm necessarily groaning here? I don't know. Could you could it be actually physically groaning? Why not? Why can't you groan unto the Lord? You don't think God understands your groan? <laughs> I think He does. <laughs> but it says these groans cannot be uttered. With groanings that cannot be uttered. That's interesting. That doesn't imply tongues, does it? Because if it can't be uttered, I mean, tongues are literally something that's uttered. So if it can't be expressed or uttered, then it doesn't seem to be tongues. So Romans 8 is not specifically saying tongues. Now, tongues might be under the umbrella of this, of this sort of prayer assisted by the Holy Spirit. Tongues might be, is, I think, is connected to this in a sense, but this isn't in itself tongues. Um, so it may not involve speaking at all. It might just be a completely internal experience. It says that 
that the, basically God knows the mind of the Spirit, obviously. Obviously, the, the Father knows the mind of the Spirit. Um, it doesn't say he understands the language of the Spirit. So again, that doesn't lean us towards thinking this is tongues. It's understanding the mind of the Spirit who's indwelling us. And we see, we see here the, what they call the economic trinity. Is that a fancy phrase I could teach you guys tonight? Um, there's the ontological trinity and the economic trinity. You ready for this? Ontological trinity is basically who God is. It's, 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 ontology is about existence. Like what is the very nature of who God is? The economic trinity is, we're, just, we're not talking about two different things here. We're talking about how the trinity operates. So like Jesus is, is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. That's ontological truths about God. Economic truths would be like the Father sent the Son who sent the Spirit. That's sort of the way in which God carries out our salvation. The Son on the cross and, and uh, the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer. So here we're seeing the Holy Spirit knowing, knowing us and, and assisting us in prayer. The Father knowing the mind of the Spirit. In a sense, what I hear this saying is we can have a powerful and beautiful and impactful prayer time when you really don't know what to pray. And that to me is really cool. <laughs> That's a huge blessing. Because if your prayer life depends on your spirituality, you're probably going to be in trouble. But if your prayer life depends upon the Holy Spirit's spirituality, then I think you'll be all right. I think you'll be all right. We can pray as weak people and still have strong prayers. We can pray as wimps and still have wonderful, sufficient prayers praying God's very will over our own lives. That's very encouraging to me. So if, you, um, if, if you're listening to this and you don't speak in tongues and you, um, and you are, a, or, or maybe you're a cessationist um, and you believe that the gifts of spirit have ceased, my encouragement to you is this. Don't rob yourself of this passage and the beauty of it and the glory of it and the wonder of it and the goodness of it in your life because we can separate it again from the whole idea of tongues in the first place. I just don't want you to miss it. You know, If you're a cessationist, I want you to be blessed by this and don't be robbed of the glory of this. When you don't know how to pray, I would just say posture yourself toward God in prayer and trust the Holy Spirit to be aiding you in that very moment when you don't even know what to pray and just enjoy it and just be blessed by it. The Holy Spirit intercedes. So you may not know what to pray, but you always know how to pray. Just your heart postured toward God, even if you are just groaning, and the Holy Spirit intercedes according to the will of God for you. So Romans 8 is, is really uh, giving us <clears throat> a lot of information about our relationship with God. It's so relational. It's so intimate. It's so very personal about how we, are, we call out Abba Father by the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we're children of God, and the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses and even aids us in our prayers. And, um, and I think Romans 8, as you read through it, it gives you a glimpse of what a genuine spiritual Christian life should look like and encourages you to be moving in that direction. To not stifle your walk with sin, to not stifle your walk with distractions, but to say, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for the, the glory of the fullness of following and knowing and walking with Christ. And I don't want to let things rob that from my life. So uh, let, let's move on to Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28. <clears throat> it says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. This is one of those comfort verses, man. 
This is one of those beautiful, beautiful comfort verses. And I want to say this because if you're like me and, you're, and you like to do all the, the more intellectual study of Scripture and really think about things, and, and sometimes you hear people quote verses and you're thinking in the back of your head like, that's not what that's about. <laughs> and you're like just going, Lord, should I say something? Or I don't know. It's true that some of the comfort verses of the Bible are misused. It is true that they're sometimes misused. And I'll give you an example. Uh, one time I heard a, a mother talking about her child who she had she tried to give a, a, a godly foundation to this child. And the child had backslidden or more, or more likely, I think more accurately, had just never really given their lives to Christ and never made it their commitment to Jesus Christ, their faith in Christ, their repentance in faith. And so she quoted to me, we were just kind of casually talking in, in the Java or coffee shop. And she says, well, you know, the Bible says train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. And so I know, I know that my son is going to, to come back to Christ. And I thought to myself, as, as probably many people would, uh, Christians would, I thought, that's not really what Proverbs is meaning. It doesn't mean that you can take a promise and you can like basically control other people's lives by the way you raise them. And then they will automatically do whatever it is you raise them to do. I mean, is the opposite true? Don't train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not receive the Lord. <laughs> like it doesn't, you know, the opposite is not true, certainly. Um, <clears throat> but, but I have heard several times people quoting this verse, not just, I've heard a couple times a parent quoting it to remind themselves that, that their kid will hopefully come back to the Lord. But I've also heard it from people who, they're like, they're like looking for verses that people take out of context. You know, you guys have seen those posts on social media like, 10 verses Christians use wrong, you know, and those kinds of things. And there's some value in that. Um, but what they end up doing is they end up robbing the value of the verse entirely. Yes, I cannot take Proverbs as solid promises. This always happens every time. But if it didn't happen a lot of the time, it wouldn't be a proverb. It's wisdom. And it is true that if I train up a child in the ways of the Lord, then I've given the best chance for this kid to come back. You know, there is something for them to fall back on. There is hope that they'll return. There is a chance that they're going to come back to the Lord, a better chance than is if, if I'd raise them as a drug lord you know, or something like that. There's certainly a better chance uh, because of these things. So it may not be a guarantee, but it certainly is wisdom. And so sometimes in our search to keep from having these verses out of context, we lose the verse entirely. I think that that has happened sometimes to Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And someone says, well, you know, Mike, technically the good that God is working in such and such and such and such. And I kind of want to go, stop, listen. Shh. All things work together for good. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that comforting? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that encouraging? And you're like, well, technically the verse is actually meaning that you can, okay, slow down. You're going you're gonna to throw out the baby with the bathwater and we could misunderstand it. But this verse, if anything, is underappreciated. So, so far in Romans, we've talked about, about suffering and groaning and times of weakness. And it has been talking about not just like, I stepped my toe, but like terrible, painful, horrible suffering. The groanings of this creation, the stuff that God has to wipe our tears away when we see his face because it's, it stays with you. And Romans has, uh, Romans has taught us that the, the sufferings this time aren't even worth comparing to the glory that's to come. 
that I can I, I can't look at this situation and say, oh, it's all good, but I can look forward and say, it's gonna be so wonderful that it won't even be compared to the suffering I'm experiencing today. Not worth comparing. I also learn in Romans 8, I have the Holy Spirit helping me in my time of weakness. That he assists me even in my times of prayer, even when I don't even know how to pray right now. The Holy Spirit comes along and assists me right then. And now we have something else in Romans 8, 28. We have this wonderful promise that everything that is going wrong, even the wrong stuff, something good is coming out of it. Man, that's encouraging. Something good is coming out of it. That's what this means. Work together. All things work together. It's not that everything that happens is good. That's not the case. I remember one time I taught a study, short notice, if I remember this story correctly, uh, I, short notice I taught a study for somebody and they basically like welched on doing the study and they just forgot about it. Um, and so short notice, like I had five minutes to prepare and I was like, okay, go teach. And then they came later on that night, they came and they showed up and they were like, so how'd it go? And I was like, well, the Lord really blessed it. Like, I mean, I just went and prayed and I've gotten the word. And it was like, God just gave me something to share and I shared it and God blessed it. And he was like, see, so it was good that I didn't do it. And I was just thinking like, something's wrong about that attitude. Like you welched your responsibility, you know? Like you should let your yes be yes, man, or your no be no. You should do what you say you're going to do. You just, you didn't show up. You, you treated it like it was some little piddly thing instead of like it was important like it is. And, it, and, then, it, and then it hit me. I was, I was young. I was probably like 20 at the time. And, it, and that's when it first hit me. I was like, God uses bad things for good, but that doesn't make bad things good. You know, it doesn't make bad things good. Like Jesus said, you know, it, it's inevitable that I'm going to be crucified, but wh- whoever does it, yeah, woe to them. It's going to happen. It's going to be taking place, but woe unto the, to the evil people who do the evil things, but still God works it together for good. He works them things together. Um, doesn't make them good. So all these things in Romans 8.20 is talking about circumstances, situations, events in life. It's talking about all of that stuff. The cancer. The death of the loved one, the paranoia that that person has, their panic attacks, the, all the stuff that's going on, God is bringing good out of it. It's working together. There's, a, there's a, an, some examples in scripture of how this happens. And I like to think of it as a domino effect good, a domino effect. There's like, you ever heard of the Rube Goldberg machines? These are those, those cartoon machines that do all these crazy weird things to like end up pouring a cup of tea right and there's like a marble and a hamster and there's like a marching band all these weird things happen and then there's like a cup of tea gets poured that kind of thing fortunately god has something better than a cup of tea planned for us but um but let's give you some examples of this domino effect good like this 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 it ends up leading to some good acts 223 it talks about the crucifixion of jesus it says him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of god you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. That it was lawless hands and it was wrong that what they did, but it was by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. God's using the evil to bring about good. Um, Pharaoh is another example of this. Exodus 9.16, God's speaking and he says, Indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up. He's talking to Pharaoh. That I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. So God's going to actually demonstrate his power and and the glory of his name through rebellious, hard-hearted Pharaoh. So God's working good out of evil. Maybe one of the best statements in scripture regarding this is Genesis 50 verse 20. Talking about Joseph and his brothers. And Joseph says to his brothers, but as for you, you meant evil against me. Remember they sold him into slavery. He was all, all these things happened, but God meant it for good. 
God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. I mean, those, could, those words could come out of Jesus' mouth. So God meant it for good. Um, you could even read on. There's all these like nuanced little things. I mean, you read the book of Ruth. You read the book of Ruth and you're like, man, it really starts sad, doesn't it? You got, you got the brothers, sickly and weakly. <laughs> I think that's what their names meant, if I remember right. You know? Huh? Piney. Piney and sickly, yes. And you have these brothers and they go and they die. And then you have this daughter who's now left with her depressed mother-in-law. And then they go back to Israel. Oh, let's go back to your land. And she's like, you're going to be my God. And Naomi's like, ah, I don't even care. <laughs> I don't even care. My, name, my new name's Bitter. <laughs> but in the end, and you get the whole story about Boaz and Ruth. Now, they never would have met. None of this would have happened if it wasn't for the deaths of those boys. They never would have met. This marriage never would have happened. But now what's interesting, it's not only did it bring about a, a good end in the sense of the, the whole story of Ruth, but at the end of Ruth, you know what? You know how the story ends? It ends with a genealogy. Ruth and Obad ha- have a kid who have a kid who, who has another kid, and his name's David, King David. Now backtrack the story a bit. If those two sons hadn't died, King David would not exist. This man would never have walked the earth. Yet it was generations later when that impact happened. God is so knowing of all of the events of life that he's able to use one seemingly unconnected event to cause some other seemingly unconnected event later on. And we can trust that all the stuff that's going on will have a good impact later. It will work together for good. That's what I would call like the domino good, the domino effect good. Life is vastly complex. If circumstances were slightly different in the past, the present would be totally different today. Like what if there was a a, a hill somewhere in England where there was not previously a hill? And this caused two roads to diverge. And then this caused Churchill's parents to never meet. How would that have changed the scope of the world? And yet what we do often is we look at our own lives and we see our own pains and we see our sufferings of just this moment and we only see in a tiny little bubble the people we think it's affecting and the way we think it impacts them. But we don't see bigger than that beyond that to know, God, you're working all things together for good. You're working all things together for good. I do not think you need to know what the good is to know that God is working it together for good. If you have to know the good before you believe that God is doing it, then you do not trust the Bible. What I'm saying here is, there's a bigger issue going on in your heart. Lord, I'll believe when I know what exactly what good's going on. First off, that's just philosophically silly to think that like God has to reveal to you his, his secret plans for everything in the world for you to approve of him. It's kind of putting yourself in the position of judging God in a very unhealthy way. But also, it means that you're rebelling against the tr- trusting the scriptures and the revealed truths of God. So life is vastly complex, and we don't know what the good is, but we know some kind of good is coming out of it. And we also know there's another type of good that Scripture talks about, and that is an ultimate good. That's an ultimate good. Now, me and Allison, we, watch, we like to watch shows together and watch movies and stuff like that. And <clears throat> I, have that, I have the sort of unfortunate habit of being able to predict a lot of stuff. A lot of you guys are like this, right? Like, you see the preview, and you're like, great. Like, I've already seen the movie. Like, I can already tell who ends. That guy who looks like a good guy in the beginning is really a bad guy. I can already tell. And this guy's going to die, but he's not really dead. And so it's, so some of us are pretty good at this, right? And to the point where she'll look at me, and she'll be like, wait, is he going to die? And I'll be like, no, don't worry. He's not gonna die. 
And more often than not, I'm right. I'm not always right. But more often than not, I'm right about those things. And it changes the way you watch the movie when you know that it ends well. Doesn't it? When you know that it ends well, you're thinking no matter how bad and dark the situation is getting, I know something's going to undo all this. I just don't know what it is. But something will undo this because I know it ends well. This is also an element of that working together for good. It's not only are there individual goods happening through the pains and sufferings of life. There's an ultimate good we're marching inevitably towards. And I can look at life and say, I know no matter how bad it is, I know it'll be good in the end. So all things are working together for good. It's a simple analogy, but to me, this is a deep, deep comfort that we should hold on to as Christians. Um, but I do have to say, Romans 8.28 is not for everyone. It says, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. It is not for everyone. It's only for those who love God. Christian, you cannot offer Romans 8.28 to encourage your unsaved friend. You can offer them salvation so they can then have Romans 8.28. But you can't give them the verse outside of Christ. There is a lot of believers going around trying to give the comforts of Christ to people who reject Christ. And what we need to give them is the gospel. We've got to give them the gospel. Um, He says, come to me and I will give you rest. He doesn't say, I'll give you rest and then maybe you'll come to me. You've got to come to him first. If you're not saved, Romans 8.28 does not apply to you at all. To those who reject God's righteousness and grace, they reject his promises and comforts as well. And they reject it all. Um, So they're called according to his purpose, which means all things are working together for good. And guess what? You're part of that purpose and plan. In the good, in the good side of it, <laughs> on, the, on the positive side, there's a grand plan, a grand design, an intended end for the things that are going on in your life right now. So, Scripture speaks of the plans of God happening from before the world was even created, and we're going to actually get into this next week. We're going to talk about foreknowledge, predestination, and those topics because Romans eight twenty nine is bringing those topics up. And I thought I'd like to just spend a week talking about it and talk about what is foreknowledge, what's predestination, and all that. Um, as, as a non-Calvinist, people go, do you believe election? And I'm like, of course I believe in election. How would I not believe? And they go, wait, what? So it may, maybe it should be explained a little bit, right? Um, <clears throat> so, so we know. We know that all things work together for good. The first two verses of Romans 8.28 might be the most important, two words, excuse me, of Romans 8.28. might be the most important words. We know. Actually, for we, right? For we know. Three words. It is not a wimpy hope. Oh, I just hope something good comes out of this. It is not an empty platitude. Christianity is allergic to platitudes. Christianity has hopes. And they're confident hopes. They're not wimpy hopes. They're strong. I'm convinced this is going to be the case. So I have strong hope. And you've got to have this. Because life will, will hit you so many different ways. You've got to have strong hope in the Lord and strong confidence in the truths of the scriptures. These promises of God are going to, they're going to hold you up when, you're, when your body doesn't. It'll be your spirit that carries you. And when life's down, it'll be, it'll be these hopes and these truths. I think to me as a Christian, empty platitudes are offensive because once you push away the platitude, then you've got nothing left. Once you realize it's empty, you've got nothing. But as a Christian, we have so much more than that. And I think you can see a person's walk thriving when you see in their eyes, and I, I get the special place as a pastor, to actually get to talk about the truths of the scriptures and the hopes we have in God. And when you see people's eyes glistening because they're like, amen, Lord. Oh, that is, oh, everyone needs to know this. Like that, you see that in their heart. Like that's, that is your walk thriving. Be encouraged. Be enjoying that. You go from I've heard it to it's true. 
And those are very different attitudes, right? I mean, I'm a youth pastor, so I've seen plenty of I heard it's, oh, I know, I know, I know. And I'm like, no, you don't know. You don't even know that you don't know. When you move from the place of I know I've heard that, I've heard that, to it's true. When you're doing what the scripture says, calling it amen. Right? Because that's, I mean, amen, we say amen means so be it. But that seems like maybe a, you're missing some of the elements of amen when you say so be it. it amen's like, amen, like, yes, it's true. Like, that resonates with me. Amen. We know that all things work together. Amen. And not the kind of amen where you interrupt a preacher. You don't even know his point yet, but you're already saying amen. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> I don't know. I don't understand that. Uh, I'm glad people don't, don't do that to me. Um, I'm just not powerful enough of a preacher, I guess. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Um, I could jump up and down more. That might help. Um, I'm just playing. I don't care if people, maybe, maybe, who knows? Maybe John jumped up and down when he preached. Who knows? Maybe he did. I don't know. I don't know. But I wouldn't interrupt him when he was preaching. That's the thing. Um, so God is working all things together for good. And this should be, uh, let the people say amen to our hearts. Our hearts should be like, amen, Lord, you are working this together for good. And without that truth settling deep in my heart, I will not see the sufferings of this time rightly. I'll see it as even darker than it is. It's like going into a dark room and closing your eyes. You know, we, we've, we've got to still see the light that is there, the things that God is doing at the moment, the promises he gives us. All things work together for good, and even if you don't know what the good is, you know that they do. That's a relief. Does that not comfort you? It, it may not be all the comfort you need, but it's not all the comfort God gives, but it is a piece of it. There's other comforts we've talked about, but this is one of them. I used to think of myself as a, as a realist. If people said, Mike, are you an optimist or a pessimist? I thought about that and I was like, well, I'm not an optimist because I think they're kind of foolish. I don't want to be a pessimist because that just seems like it's wrong to be a pessimist, but I kind of am. So I said, I'm a realist. My pride leaking out, right? I'm a realist. That's, so like, what is it? Are you optimist or pessimist? I'm just right. <laughs> That's what I meant. <laughs> Not the most humble of attitudes. But as I grew in the Lord, as I, as I read scripture and let theology form my, my thinking, you know, let become more biblically minded, I started to realize that genuinely spiritual people, people who are truly realists, are optimists. Not the folly of optimism where you just imagine some future that, that you're going to pretend is going to happen, and if it doesn't, you'll just pretend something else for later. But the kind of optimism that's unshakable because it's grounded in the truths of God where you know that we're heading to a glory that can't be compared to the sufferings of this time, where you know you've got the Holy Spirit helping you through your daily life and the trials that are going on, and you know that God is working all things together for good to them who love him and are called according to his purpose. And this creates an optimism in you that is right and good, a good hopeful attitude. So, um, okay, let's, let's do verse 29 just to give us, just to give us a little preview <laughs> for next week. Romans 8, 29 says, For whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, next week, we'll talk about foreknowledge, predestination, all that sort of thing. But this week, I just want to remind us, one of the things God is working us together towards good, the goods he's bringing out of this stuff, is he's conforming us to the image of his son. He's making us more like Jesus. And my challenge to you is that you would look at your life 
Look at your life and the struggles you're going through today. The trials, the pains, the sorrows, the hardships, the doubts, fears, you name it. And honestly do this. Say, Lord, how is this helping to shape me into more Christ-likeness in my life? And if you can just ask the question, it will posture your heart towards a greater place spiritually. I really believe it. If you can just say, Lord, help me. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm learning patience here. Maybe I'm learning perseverance. Maybe I'm learning how much you love me through the hardships I'm having loving this other person. Maybe I'm learning to die to myself and to take up my cross. Maybe I'm learning to not be part of this world in the first place. I don't know what the lessons are, but there is a shaping of our character that can be happening through the hardships of life. In fact, we learn more in pain than we ever learn in pleasure. We learn more in hardship than we do in joy and um, and God uses it uh, powerfully in our lives. Powerfully in our lives if we yield to it, it seems. Because I do believe there's people who can be getting taught lessons over and over and not learning them. But I want to I want to learn it so I can move on to something else. Okay, <laughs> that's the idea. All right. Well, let's uh, let's pray and then we'll we'll do our our, uh, our Q and A and discussion back and forth. Um, Father, we thank you for your word. This hope, Lord, it is. Um, it's almost shameful to think that 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 this Bible study I'm teaching, Lord, is is um is going to tr- try to be representative of the incredible comforts and hopes that we have in Christ. So we just pray, Lord, that you would supernaturally, spiritually awaken our hearts and minds to the incredible hopes we have in Jesus. The help we have to to have the Spirit interceding for us, Lord, so that we could just posture our hearts to you in prayer and trust you to intercede according to your own great and glorious will. The, um, the hopes we have, Lord, that, that what is coming is so great it can't be compared to the sufferings of today. And the hopes we have, Lord, that um, that all things are working together for good. Let us be optimists, Lord. Without anything in our lives getting better, let our attitudes be better, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.